If you were here last week, uh, you saw the interaction that I had with the children and I kind of crushed their dreams about uh, thinking that Jonah ended up being a good guy in the end of the story. <laughs> and uh, what I said was one of my, uh, my personal uh, interests, things I find interesting is when popular literature or children's Bible stories or whatever takes a biblical character or an idea and they kind of like water it down and make it fluffy to like kind of convey a bland moral point like be nice like Jonah. (laughs) Well, one of the uh, biblical ideas where uh, we see a lot of watering down and a lot of uh, strange uh, ideas about is the idea of heaven, right? Um, No doubt you have uh, experienced at some point in your life a depiction, a popular depiction of heaven that involved grand blue skies and white clouds and winged creatures kind of floating around ethereally, right? Um, This is, I I don't know where this notion came from, um, but it's very popular. Listen uh, to what uh, Arnold, her former wife, former wife of Arnold Schwarzenegger, Maria Shriver, she wrote a children's book about heaven, and uh, this is what she came up with. I'm just going to read a clip from you. I'm not going to use Arnold's uh, voice to do it, but Um, she said, heaven is somewhere you believe in. It's a beautiful place where you can sit on soft clouds and talk to other people who are there. A night... At night, you can sit next to the stars, which are the brightest of anywhere in the universe. If you're good throughout your life, then you get to go to heaven. Bad theology. When your life is finished here on earth, God sends angels down to take you up to heaven to be with him. Now, see, you've seen, you've heard or read or seen this kind of depiction of heaven, right? Um, I just have to be honest with you. I can't think personally of a more boring view of heaven than that. Like, do you really want it for all of eternity, sit on a cloud with like a harp and just kind of have small talk with other people? I think that's a boring view of heaven. I think it's a small view of heaven. And I don't know where it came from historically, but it did not come from the Bible. Now, that may be a surprise to you, but it actually does not come from the Bible. The biblical view of heaven is so much bigger. It's so much more interesting than that. Thank God. That's what we're going to look at um, today, primarily in our passage from Revelation 21, now, it's uh, the Feast of All Saints today. It was, it, was, it was on Thursday, but we're celebrating it today. And so naturally, we're thinking about departed loved ones and wondering about where they are and what it's like. And, and uh, we have all those kind of questions. Well, the Bible doesn't tell us a whole lot about the intermediate period between death and Jesus' second coming when he raises us to judge the living and the dead. But, but we do know that Jesus told the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise, right? So we know that those who are in the Lord are in a good place with him in that intermediate period. But the Bible doesn't tell us a whole lot more about it other than that. But the Bible does have some substantial things to say about the final destiny and dwelling place of the saints of God. And that's what we're going to look at today. Um, what it does, when you look at what Scripture says about um, what it calls a new heaven and a new earth, um, it actually sheds light on the gospel in a lot of ways. And we're going to look at three different ways that the biblical vision of heaven um, actually uh, tells us something important about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay? Now, before we dive into Revelation, we're going to get, like, we got to have some context. As John is getting this great vision, it's at the very end of the Bible. So let me just show you, like, Revelation chapter 21. See, it's very, very at the end. But to really uh, have the full meaning of it, 
you have to rewind and go back to the beginning of the story to get some context. Now, those of you who came to the Bible retreat and who have been going to Bible studies, we're looking at the big narrative arc of Scripture, the one unifying story that it tells. And so we got to place it within the big story. So now go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. And what happens there, right, that the tragedy of the world happens in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve decide to disobey God, right? And so the world comes under, at that point, the curse of sin and death. Well, under that, what's really happening is the essence of that is that they have lost God's presence, right? Because they have, in essence, defiled or impurified themselves with their own rebellion. And so God withdraws, although he pursues them. Which is why immediately after they make that decision, the first words out of God's mouth are to Adam are, where are you? Right? He is in a, he's in a posture of pursuit already, uh, towards people who have sinned and rebelled against him. And we see this picture all throughout the Bible. This is this whole story of the Bible is that God is pursuing people who are continually unfaithful, continually falling into sin and idolatry. And God just keeps pursuing them and saying, why are you acting with self-destructive behavior? Why are you running from me and trying to cling to other gods? I love you. I want to be with you. And yet you're rejecting me, right? And that's kind of the story that goes all throughout the Bible. And so what we see right from the very beginning of Scripture is that God's heart, God's desire has always been to be in a relationship of nearness to his creatures, right? He's a very personal God, but people keep messing it up and we botch the whole thing and God continues for some reason in his mercy to pursue us in his love. Now, we just heard from the prophet Isaiah a moment ago. This was a little snippet. Now, Isaiah is writing to the Israelites, God's chosen people, who are in exile. Now, why did they go in, why did they get exiled from their land? It was a result of disobedience and sin, right? And so they're suffering the consequences of that. They're exiled in the land of Babylon who rules over them. And Isaiah is writing to them. And if you read through Isaiah, there's a lot of awesome passages, but there's uh, both desperation and judgment and then there's hope, right? Because prophets are always pointing out to people, the people, what their sin is and what the coming judgment is going to be if they don't turn from their ways, but then painting a picture of restoration and hope and forgiveness. Now, in the passage today, Isaiah is addressing, he's looking forward and talking to the people about the future restoration, and he talks about things, he uses language like this, he says, there will be a feast of rich food and well-aged wine, some of your ears just perked up, where God would swallow up death forever and wipe away the tears from all faces. Now, The people have to be wondering at this point, well, when's that coming? We're wondering, when did it come? Did it already come? But what it is, it's an image of an ideal age, right? An ideal age in an indeterminate future. I stole that from a Bible scholar. I don't think I'm that smart to come up with that kind of a phrase. It's an image of an ideal phrase in an indeterminate future. It's kind of left open as Isaiah comes to an end. And so we're wondering when this hopeful vision will actually be fully realized where there is a a feast and God is with his people And there's nothing but joy and celebration. Okay, so there's a little context. Now we can kind of jump back and fast forward into Revelation chapter 21. So that's where we're gonna, we're gonna camp out for a little while today for the next few minutes. So if you, uh, want to follow along in your bulletin, we will be in the passage, uh, from John's Revelation. The first thing, we're gonna go through three things fairly briefly that the biblical vision of heaven tells us about the gospel. And the first is this. The gospel 
is cosmic in scale. The gospel is cosmic in scale. Okay? Now let's read just the first couple verses here. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Notice what's happening here. Uh, there are not uh, disembodied souls floating off to some cloudy, ethereal place. What's happening here? The heavenly city is descending down to earth, right? Heaven, heaven comes to us in the end, okay? And begins to, uh, and begins to immerse itself in the earthly atmosphere, okay? So here's a metaphor. It's probably not perfect, but it's the best one I could come up with on my own. Um, if you spilled like a glass of water or lemonade on the kitchen floor, on a wood floor or something, and you grab your paper towels, and hopefully you have good ones like Bounty, the quicker picker-upper, and that are really absorbent, and you kind of grab a few of them. And uh, what I like to do, I like to drop them and kind of let them float down on it and watch it kind of slowly absorb everything up. You know that when that happens? This is kind of the vision that John is giving us. He's saying what's happening is heaven is coming and saturating earth, right? That's the vision of heaven and scripture is that God's dwelling place comes and merges with our dwelling place because that's what God originally intended in the beginning, right? But because of human sin and rebellion, God had to kind of withdraw, right? And the earth and the world comes under the power of sin and death. Well, this is a picture of everything coming back together as it should be, okay? So it's important to note that it's not a place up there where saved souls are going and leaving. It's a place that is down here, if you will. And what it is, it's the entire created order, right? It's a new heavens and a new earth, okay? It is creation restored to its original purpose. It's not an escape from material existence. It's its fulfillment, Okay, heaven in the Bible is not about an escape from material existence. It's about its fulfillment. This is why we pray every Sunday when we come together and you probably pray in your daily prayers. This is what it means when we pray. This is what's behind us praying. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right. We are in essence asking God. It's as if we are praying heaven to come down to earth. Right. And saturate earth. That's what we're praying. That God would fully bring about his kingdom. And set up his reign here. So that things would be as they should be. Moving on. He says the sea was no more. Right? Now I know what you Floridians are thinking. Oh no. They are not going to take our beaches away. (laughs) But that's not what he's saying. Okay, In the ancient world, the sea was uh, an image of chaos and disorder and violence and tumult, right? Because of storms and everything like that. And so the sea is an image here of anything that is corrupted by sin and disorder and destruction being washed away, right? It's not telling us that no one's going to take a swim in the new heavens and the new earth, okay? So don't don't worry. I imagine there will be beaches there. I I hope so. Now, there's also, um, let's just move on in the passage a little bit and look at what he says in verse 3. He says, And then I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them. Point number two. The gospel 
is God's means of drawing close to his children. See, it's what enables God to move towards us. In fact, the gospel is God moving towards us with his grace and his mercy and enfolding us into his arms, right? This is why the gospel of Jesus is central to this vision of fellowship with God. Because Jesus does what we could not do for ourselves. He purifies us of our sin and changes our hearts so that we are able to love and obey our Heavenly Father and makes us able to dwell in His presence. Now, this word dwell here that you see, it says He will dwell with them. And in a lot of Bibles, there's a little footnote that tells you, that that says, um, if you look down at the footnote, you know, there's like a little letter A, B, C, or D, and you look down at the footnote and it says another word for it or something, and it will say tabernacle. Well, that's interesting. That's worth noting. So um, all throughout the Bible, remember, God is trying to move towards sinful humanity, and he's setting up ways that there can be a system for Him to people to, to approach him and to be in his presence. And one of those things was the tabernacle, right? Well, what happened at the tabernacle? It was God's dwelling place where the Ark of the Covenant sat among the Israelites, and at the in, inside of the tent and outside of the tent is where you came to offer your animal sacrifice for the atonement for sin, right? And so the idea of a tabernacle is a place where God can dwell and there's a system in place where people are able, even with, despite their sin, to be cleansed of that and to remain in his presence. So it's important for John to use that language because what he's showing us now in the new heaven and the new earth, there's no more tabernacle. There's no more temple. And there's no more sacrificial system. Why? Because Jesus' sacrifice for the sins of the world was once and for all. And now what that enables is God and his people to once again dwell together, right? Because he has clothed us in his purity. Amazing. <clears throat> there's another little detail here that I just want to look at. And this is where you get nerdy into the language. But um, it says... His peoples, it says they will be, he will dwell with them and they will be his peoples. Um, that's, that's an important note. Um, because if it just said people without the S, you would think, well, maybe he's still just talking about the Israelites. They're his people. But the vision of heaven in scripture is a people from every tribe, nation, tongue gathered around the throne of God, right? Enjoying this new creation. And so here, this is a really important point, actually. It's a practical point for thinking about in our own lives because the gospel vision of heaven flies in the face of any racism or nationalism or ethnocentrism or anything else like that because God chooses to dwell with people based on their allegiance to Jesus, not the color of their skin or their national accomplishments. Okay? And that's very getting a little political there, but I think it's an important detail uh, in the text. Now, moving on, he says this in verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. I have uh, read this passage a 100,000 times, and I had not really sat there and kind of camped out on that line until I was recently studying it. And I thought about this because as a father with young children, a two-year-old who's constantly scuffing her knees and bumping her head and things like that, I wipe away tears a lot. And if you think about it and think, think about this, whether you, you've done this for a child or a friend or a spouse, when you wipe away a tear from someone's eye, that is the most tender and intimate moment where, where compassion is on display, right? Friends, that's the heart of our God. That's the heart of our Heavenly Father, is to wipe away our tears Himself, right? 
Amazing. Death will be no more. This is another promise made here. Death will be no more. Now think about this. Every day we see and experience, sometimes in ways that are close to our own hearts, the people that are close to us, we experience the curse of death, right? We see fatal shootings in synagogues, churches, clubs, schools. We see the pervasive presence of cancer in our hospitals. We see tragic car accidents. We Even, even losing someone to death in, it naturally in old age causes great grief. Now, why is that? Death haunts us, and yet we cry out and we protest and we say, this is wrong, death is wrong, things should not be this way, don't we? There's something in us that cries out against death. And you look at our gospel reading and you see this even in Jesus. He weeps over Lazarus. It's tell, the text told us that he was greatly disturbed. You see, death even breaks the heart of God. Now, why is that? Why is it that death even phases us? I would argue that it's because all of us were made, because death is unnatural. And we were actually made for immortality. And so we long for it. And so when we experience death, we say, this isn't right. Things aren't supposed to be this way. C.S. Lewis, uh, who, who many of you have read and know his books, he was an atheist who became a Christian and became kind of one of the most prominent defenders of the Christian faith in the mid-20th century in, in England. Uh, he had this wonderful argument. He's always debating with his philosopher friends and smoking his pipe and debating Christianity and atheism. And he had a really, I thought, creative argument called the argument from desire. Listen to what he says. Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for these desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. People feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. That's good. I like the logic. But what gets the point across that we all have a desire to transcend death and to live forever. Because if we didn't, death wouldn't phase us. We just go, eh, that's part of it, right? But we don't. But the, the Christian hope is that because Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, and Paul tells us that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead will raise us from the dead, those who are in Christ. That is the Christian hope. And if you have this hope, you can actually endure anything in this life. It doesn't make it easy, but it grounds you and roots you in a hope that God will ultimately heal every square inch of his creation. I love what uh, the poet John Donne, some of you know uh, him who are into poetry, just want to read a couple lines from his poem, Death Be Not Proud. He says, Death be not proud, though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. One short sleep past, we wake eternally, and death shall be no more. Death, thou shalt die. You can give a Baptist amen to that if you, if you want to. <laughs> that is gospel. So what does it all mean? What does it all mean for us? If the biblical notion of heaven is not about getting away from here, but about God coming here and setting this world right, bringing heaven to earth, 
Disciples of Jesus will see their lives and their mission in a new light. Right? Our mission isn't just to simply save the spiritual souls of people so that they can have somewhere nice when they die, so that they can go somewhere nice when they die. The gospel calls us to such a bigger picture of mission. And the first thing is this, a practical thing. We will let go of notions of salvation as fire insurance. All right, you ever thought about salvation as fire insurance? Well, I went to church camp and I said the prayer because the minister scared me uh, with his images of hell. And so now I can get on with life and have a nice place to go and I die. See, um, the, God is not a get-out-of-jail-free card, right? That, that's an affront to God who actually gave the li- his own life to bring people to himself, to be Lord of their lives and to walk in intimate fellowship with them every day of their lives. So we will let go of that simplistic view of salvation as fire insurance. The second thing that we'll do is we will embrace this bigger cosmic picture of salvation and we'll recognize that our call is not only to do Christian spiritual deeds and things, right, but actually to contribute to the flourishing of this world that God calls good when he finishes it, right? To our cities, we'll contribute to our institutions, our political systems, to every other cultural endeavor that is good and beautiful, right? God smiles upon not just a a soup kitchen volunteer, though he does, right? He also smiles on uh, the, the person whose Christian faith informs their ethic in their business practice or their, their, the way that they approach their paintings or how they uh, deal with their political opponents who frustrate them, right? You see, the gospel, if you love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength and you love your neighbor as yourself, it, your mission actually it flows out into every single area of life right? That's a so much more an exciting view than I hope I can get another notch on my belt that someone says the sinner's prayer and so they can go to heaven when they die. The gospel is so much bigger than that. Now, finally, and most importantly, if we embrace the biblical vision of a restored cosmos, we will first embrace the biblical vision of a restored heart. St. Paul was writing to the Corinthians, and he said this, If anyone is in Christ, that is, if anyone has given their allegiance to Christ and and entrusted their life to him, there is a new creation. Oh, that sounds familiar, that new creation language. There is in that person already a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. And then he says this, and this is where he just gets to the gospel, and he says, all this, all of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. See, the new creation will be filled with people whose hearts have been transformed by the love of Jesus Christ. The vision of a new heaven and a new earth, there's a mistake that can be made here, it's not simply... A, uh, the successful outcome of a, of a social justice project, right? It's bigger than that. It's the end result of Jesus Christ laying down his life to make his enemies friends and to populate that kingdom, that newly restored cosmos with the people who have let that gospel take hold of their hearts and their lives. See, often we think of heaven, we ask the wrong questions. How can I get there? What, what, what's the bare, if, if we've all thought this in the back of our head at some point, what's the bare minimum that I can do 
so I can live comfortably without losing out because I don't want to go to hell and I want to enjoy a nice place when I die. Can't I just believe that Jesus died for my sins and then get on with life as usual? And I think that the scriptures, and especially Jesus himself, challenges that view as simplistic and says, come, follow me now, here. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who uh, was a theologian in the 20, early 20th century who was, uh, was opposed in his writings to the, not what the Nazi regime was doing in his country, he had this wonderful line, and it's challenging to me every, every time I hear it, but he wrote, when Christ calls a person, he bids them come and die, right? And that death to self, right? Allowing him to become not only Savior, but Lord. That is where new creation begins in the depths of the human heart. Friends, you see, if you're really a new creation, if you've allowed Jesus to go into those deep places, then there will be a transformation of of your day-to-day thoughts, attitudes, behavior, and practices. You will see how the gospel actually flows in to all of life. That's what it looks like when we allow God to make us into new creation. And the saints that we honor today who have gone before us, that is what happened in their lives. The saints, when we look at icons of saints that are glowing with gold and bright colors, it's to show us an image of the glory that they have been received into because of lives of absolute and utter faithfulness to Jesus in all things. And once that takes place in us and continues to, to pervade all of our lives, we can, we can look forward to that day when heaven merges with earth and all things are made new and we can say with the prophet Isaiah, it will be said on that day, lo, this is our God. We have waited for him so that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Let's pray. Gracious Father, your word uh, tells us that you who did not spare your own son would graciously give us all things. We thank you for the tender compassion of your heart towards us even in our sin and our rebellion, Lord, that you would deign and become to become one of us and to take our humanity upon yourself and to die for our sin, a sacrifice that would cleanse us once and for all and prepare us to live lives that are pleasing to you so that we know when you return to judge the living and the dead and to purge this world of all that is against you and your purposes, that we will enjoy that perfect fellowship with you that our hearts right now so long for. God, we ask that you would uh, imprint this vision upon our minds and our hearts so that when we exit those red doors today, we will think about, each and every one of us, how you are calling that vision to affect our lives and to affect transformation in the world and in the people around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.